All right, good morning. That was powerful, wasn't it? Oh my. What an incredible story. Uh, And how appropriate on uh, a day like this as we look at uh, communion and our connection with Jesus through the cross. And then we hear from Rashid's testimony as he is baptized that today our message is about identity. Rashid just shared with us how his identity totally changed when he came to Christ. And as you and I think about our lives, as we walk with Christ, we need to have the same mindset of the new creation, the new person that we are. And how we communicate that to the next generation, our children, our children's children. And so today we're going to be talking about leaving a legacy of identity. We'll be in Joshua 5. Go ahead and turn there if you would. Before we get into that, though, I want to ask you, what is your identity? What is your identity? Maybe if someone came up to you and said, well, tell me about yourself. Who are you? What would you tell them? What is your identity? Maybe you'd talk about what you did for a living. A lot of times we identify with our career as who we are, a nurse, uh, a teacher, doctor, chef, mom, whatever. Maybe you identify with a certain political party and you enjoy engaging in political discussion. Maybe you're like these guys and you're excited about what's happening this evening. Now, uh, before, before I talk a little bit about that, uh, I believe that the Patriots guy is a mugshot, <laughs> for whatever that's worth. If you look up crazy Patriots fan, this is one of the first guys that comes up. And he has Patriots stuff tattooed all over his head. And apparently he is incarcerated. <laughs> but as we think about our identity, I wonder, are we more passionate about what's going to happen tonight than we are about Jesus? When you talk to someone at work or wherever you happen to find yourself, what do you talk about? Do you talk about sports, politics, what you do for a living? Or is there something better for us that we have a much more important identity? That you and I are children of God through what Jesus Christ did for us. And that's the most important identity of all. Now, we can talk about, we could talk about many areas of identity and how we are children of God. This morning we're going to focus on two. We're going to look at what is brought up here in Joshua 5, and that is the idea of circumcision. And we're also going to talk about baptism, which we just witnessed, as a means of identification. So let's get started. We're going to first talk about physical circumcision. Now, let me just warn you that uh, it's important for us to understand circumcision and baptism theologically. And so our main task this morning is to sort of dive into these two subjects and then with the goal of obviously incorporating that into our identity and who we are 
and how that should reflect in how we live. So we're going to start with physical circumcision. I told you to turn to Joshua 5. I'm going to change that, actually, because we're actually going to first start in Genesis 17. Turn to Genesis 17. In this part of the book of Genesis, God is developing a relationship. He has called Abraham, and he has made a covenant with Abraham, and he institutes circumcision in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham as a sign of that covenant. And this, of course, is physical circumcision. Let's read about it. We are in Genesis chapter 17. We'll start in verse 1, but we might skip down a little bit. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Something that's very important for us to understand, and I tell this to my students a lot uh, in the Old Testament, is we have to understand the idea of covenants. The idea of covenants is really central to how God operates with his people. Whether it's Old Testament, like with Abraham, or New Testament in the New Covenant. Right? We need to understand the idea of God's agreements that he makes, his, his covenants, his promises that he makes with his people. And Abraham is a, one of the first great examples of God making a covenant with someone. And God promises Abraham three things. You can read about it in chapter 12, chapter 15. It happens a lot. God reaffirms the covenant with Isaac and with Jacob. He promises Abraham three things. He promises him the promised land. He promises him seed, many descendants, and he promises him blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so to ratify this covenant, if you will, God gives Abraham a sign to remind Abraham that God has made this covenant to him, and that sign is circumcision. Let's read about it, verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. So here is what God is instructing Abraham to do to evidence his faith in God's covenant. It says, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off, right, a similar term here, from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
And so God institutes physical circumcision as something that's very important to Abraham and his family. Now, of all things, why did God pick circumcision? It's pretty odd, right? So what are some of the reasons? I'm going to give you three reasons why God chose circumcision from the least important to the most important, why God chose circumcision as the sign of his covenant. First reason, it resulted in greater cleanliness of life. Obviously, circumcision is practiced a lot in our culture today. It has health benefits, and God obviously knew that. And so that is, the, uh, albeit a minor reason, a reason why he institutes circumcision with Abraham and his people. Second reason for circumcision is that it involved cutting off the flesh. There was this symbolism here that the flesh is something you and I need to put off We need to be spiritually minded people. And so God wanted Abraham to do the same thing. He says, okay, this is a sign you're cutting off the flesh. It's in the flesh, right? He wants you to to not think of the flesh any longer, but to think of spiritual things. So it's a, a means of refocusing. And then finally, and I think this is the most important of all, it reminded especially the males of God's promise concerning the seed, the 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 descendants that would come after Abraham. And so ultimately, the point for circumcision is that it is meant to remind us, to remind them, really, because we'll talk about us more in a minute, but it was to remind Abraham and his descendants the promises that God had made. It was a means of identifying, I align myself, I have this identity as being a child under the promise of God. Does that make sense? And so this, this, this idea of identity was something that was very important to physical circumcision. Now, if you have your let's turn to Joshua chapter 5, which is our main text for the, this morning, because circumcision is, is reintroduced in Joshua chapter 5. Now, circumcision is practiced between uh, Genesis and Joshua, but it's reintroduced to the nation of Israel just as they're about to enter the promised land. Again, as a means of identification. So we're in Joshua chapter 5. It's interesting that this happens right after the Stones of Remembrance passage that Ray preached on last week because this is one of the things they forgot, as we're going to see. Let's read about it. Joshua chapter 5. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. 
For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. So here we have an example that comes right on the heels of this idea of forgetfulness, that the people failed to identify themselves with the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. They had lost their identity. They had drifted from being a a child of Abraham and being able to enjoy the promises that God had made. They forgot. Ray touched on this last week, how quickly we are to forget what God has done. There's a really interesting principle in Scripture. This is going to be for free, and then we're going to get back into circumcision. But there's this, there's this really interesting principle in Scripture that carries with it the idea of you and I don't know the future, right? And so there is this, this picture in Scripture of the way we move forward is to look back. To look back and see what God has done, how God's... We don't look back at the messy stuff, right? We, we want to kind of... Our sin, those... But where God is faithful, right? Those, these stones of remembrances. That's how we move forward. So there's this idea in Scripture of... I'm, my life is going this way, but I can't see it. I'm not looking ahead. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? There's this idea, though, of as I'm moving forward, I'm looking backward. I'm looking back at what God has done. And that's what gives me the ability and the faith and the courage to move forward. And so the reality is the people of Israel are in this moment. They're here where they are about to enter the promised land and they're about to engage in war, in conquest. In fact, Jericho happens right after this. So they're about to to begin this conquest, but how can they move forward until they look back and remember who they are? That's what they missed. They forgot their identity. Same is true for you and I. If you and I are not looking back and remembering, we forget who we are. We forget where we're going. We forget what we're doing. That's why those stones that Ray had last week and, and... is reading with his family, like, that's a powerful thing. I would encourage all of us to do that. We don't know what tomorrow might bring, but you know what? We know what God has already done. So the people of Israel forgot their identity. They failed to practice circumcision in the wilderness. We see evidence of their forgetfulness throughout the Old Testament, actually. There are large periods of time where they fail to read the law in public like they're supposed to, like at the Feast of Booths. Every seven years, all the people were together, supposed to read the law to everyone. They forget. They lose their identity. So physical circumcision is a sign of the covenant that God made to his people. They could identify with God and the promises that God made to Abraham through this sign of circumcision. However, physical circumcision is not the only type of circumcision as mentioned in the Old Testament. Here's what we have to understand. The New Testament, the biggest issue in the church, the biggest one, 
If you read all the books in the New Testament, almost every single one deals with the issue of circumcision. So Jews and Gentiles constantly fought in the early church about this idea of identity. The Jews said, hey, you need to be circumcised in order to identify as God's people. And the Gentiles said, well, no. <laughs> and eventually, in Acts 15, we're not going to take the time to study it, but they, ha they have a council in Jerusalem, and they talk about this. And finally, people stand up and say, you know what? You know, Paul stands up, and Peter stands up, and James stands up, and they say, look, God has accepted them. Physical circumcision is not required. There's something that's more important than the physical, and that's spiritual circumcision. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. So not only is physical circumcision mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New, but we also have this idea of spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart, if you will. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the book of Deuteronomy is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It basically reaffirms God's covenants with the nation of Israel before they enter the promised land. This is Moses' last words to the people. He's about to die. They're going to head into the land under Joshua. So this comes right before the book of Joshua. That's why it's a, a good, uh, and it really helps set the tone for the rest of the Old Testament, right? If you understand Deuteronomy, you understand the rest of the Old Testament. Right? The Mosaic Covenant says, obey God, blessing, disobey God, cursing. That's why when Israel is bad, God punishes them. Right? We have a whole period of judges where that happens. They're punished for their wrongdoing. But the Abrahamic Covenant says, I have an everlasting covenant with you as a people. So even if God wants to just totally destroy them, he can't because of the covenant he made with Abraham. So now we have this you know, cycle throughout the Old Testament of, oh, Mosaic Covenant, they're bad, I'm going to punish them, but I can't destroy them because of the covenant I made with Abraham. But when they confess and start obeying me again, they are blessed because of the Mosaic Covenant, and it repeats. So the book of Deuteronomy is incredibly important, but in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we're going to look at Jeremiah 4 as well, but in Deuteronomy chapter 30... Let's start reading verse 1. When all these blessings and cursings I've set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassions on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Again, he's saying there's going to be times where you're conquered and dispersed. I'm also going to gather you back. Verse 4, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that they may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. Turn over to Jeremiah 4. The same concept is again revealed in Jeremiah chapter 4.
Again, just like in Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 4 is also in the context of Israel being disobedient. So you can read about that they're, they're going to experience disaster, that they're going to be conquered, that they're going to constantly be under threat, so they're going to be punished when they fail to uh, listen to what God has told them to do. And ultimately, God brings up this idea of, of uh, spiritual circumcision again. If I could only find it. <laughs> Seems like this happens all the time, doesn't it? We've been here before. Okay. Man. Oh, yeah, it's verse 4. I knew it was 4-4. Four, four. All right. We're going to start in verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. And so in Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 5, there's this idea that uh, spiritual circumcision goes beyond physical circumcision. That physical circumcision is an outward act, whereas spiritual circumcision is an inward belief. It's an inward change. It's an inward identity. And so when we get to the New Testament and we think about the Pharisees and all the enemies of, of Jesus, the ones who crucified him, they failed to see that. Their identity was a physical one, not a spiritual one. And so you and I need to remember who we are. Who we are is not what we do. Our identity is our relationship with Jesus through what he accomplished on the cross. And what we do is still important. So circumcision is about identity. It's about identifying yourself with uh, the promises that God made to his people. Now, as we transfer into the New Testament... And circumcision is obviously something at the forefront of disagreements within the church. There is something new that is introduced in the New Testament that is a means of identification. And that's what we just witnessed in a physical sense with Rashid. Baptism. But before we talk about physical baptism, let's first talk about spiritual baptism. So we have circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament, and they function in a very similar way. So first we're going to talk about spiritual baptism. First, spiritual baptism introduced. Let's just turn for the sake of time. I know it's snowing, and I know, you know we need to get out of here. Let's just turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Jesus is having a conversation at night with a Pharisee named Nicodemus who seems to recognize there's something certainly about Jesus that is worth taking note of, and so he wants to investigate. He is curious. 
But let's look at what Jesus says. Again, we're talking about spirit or spiritual baptism. We'll start reading verse 1 once again. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. There has to be a rebirth that takes place. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. He's confused. He's thinking physical. Jesus is talking spiritual. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water. That's physically. We've all experienced that. And the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And so Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus that having your identity in Christ, having a relationship with God is about experiencing a spiritual baptism. Many of my students, and if you're their parents, know that I, I like to make them think a lot, right? That's, that's what I like to do as a Bible teacher. I like to ask them difficult questions, those types of things. And so um, in eighth grade this year, I love asking the question uh, of my eighth graders. We're studying the book of Acts, right, which talks a lot about, uh, obviously, baptism, both spirit and water. And so one of the first things I do when I get them to class is, is baptism necessary for salvation? And obviously their answer is no. And then I get to tell them, well, it is. And then they're like, oh, no, Mr. Al, it's a heretic. And then we get to sit down and discuss this idea of spiritual baptism. That the moment you and I place our faith in Jesus, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that baptism identifies us as a part of God's family. And then they're always like, oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's good. But this idea of spiritual baptism is one that Jesus proclaims we also know that it occurs at salvation because of what 1 Corinthians 12 tells us. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We'll look at this one. 1 Corinthians 12. There are other passages we could look at, certainly. Uh, we'll just read verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12. Um, basically, he's talking about uh, uh, people being a, many parts but being a part of the same body. Right? That's what a church is. That's what the body of Christ is. Many different people in one unit. And he said, well, we'll start in verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, right, it's an important issue, this idea of circumcision, no. Spiritual baptism, that's what's emphasized in the New Testament. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So as a believer in Jesus, we have all experienced spiritual baptism. And the purpose of it is to identify us with the body of Christ. Now when he talks about the body of Christ in this sense, he's talking about the universal body of Christ. 
that you and I and believers around the world who worship today are a part of the same body because we are all God's children through what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That's important. If you read through the book of Acts, just the, the amount of times the Spirit is brought up in baptism, I wonder if we as uh, 2018 believers forget or fail to appreciate the Holy Spirit and what he's done for us. Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You and I have the power of God within us. Jesus says that his disciples are better off that he leaves and the Spirit comes. I mean, I'd love to have Jesus right here, right? That would be great, wouldn't it? He says, no, it's better to have the Holy Spirit. That's our identity. That's who we are. If you place your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit brings you into God's family. That's your identity. That's my identity. Now, before we close... We need to talk about physical baptism then. So spiritual baptism identifies us as God's child. What about physical baptism? Physical baptism is introduced largely under the ministry of John the Baptist. And he makes some claims, right? He says, I baptize with water, but he who comes after me is going to be different. John understood that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a way of physically demonstrating that you've experienced a change of belief. That's what baptism is. Baptism, water baptism, physical baptism is a means through which you communicate that I have identified, I've been identified with Christ through spirit baptism, and I want to publicly declare that this is who I am, and this is who I'm always going to be. Again, that's why Rashid's testimony is so powerful. That we got to hear how his identity changed from self to Christ. And publicly, he demonstrated that. That's the point of physical baptism. Physical baptism is important because it identifies our faith in Jesus and it identifies us with other believers. I want to tell you a quick story. When I became a youth pastor out, uh, this was five and a half, six years ago, out in Western PA before I came here. Um, my wife and I were both rebaptized. I sat down, had a meeting in the for what it's worth, in the Grace Brethren Church, they triple dunk you. More emphasis. No, they do. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Maybe you've experienced that here. Obviously, we practice one, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 6 talks about that. But to be a part of the church, they said, would you be rebaptized as a means not of saying, you know, your first baptism wasn't legitimate. You know, your first water baptism wasn't legitimate. 
but as a means to identify yourself with this body, this church in Catani. I said, sure. <laughs> That's what water baptism does. It identifies you with a local body, right? Spirit baptism, universal church, global body, physical baptism, local body. And so, yes, Pastor Larry, he triple-dunked me, and then I triple-dunked my wife. That was kind of cool. They told me I had to let her up for air after a while. No, <laughs> that didn't happen. I made that part up. But the point was, it was a means for us to identify with, these are the group of pe- this is the group of people that we are committed to worshiping God together with, our Father. And that's really what water baptism does, right? It's a means of identification. Now, I know that we focused on circumcision and baptism, right? We were in Joshua 5. That's why we, we started this discussion, this idea. But ultimately, this morning, I want you to really ask yourself, what is your identity? What defines you? If I were to ask a coworker, a friend, a family member, tell me about so-and-so, what would they tell me? That he's a conservative Republican? That he's a doctor? That he's an Eagles fan? Who's going to be disappointed after tonight? <laughs> or as a child of God, as a member of Christ's family, as someone who is fully committed to Jesus. And what kind of legacy are we passing on to our children? I joke with our kids, I'm a, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, because they're awesome, <laughs> even though not lately. But I tell, I tell my wife jokingly that if any of my sons root for the, my wife's an Eagles fan. How this marriage works, I don't know. <laughs> the grace of God, I guess. But I tell my wife, Julie, all the time, jokingly, that if any of my sons root for the Eagles, they're out of the house. I don't care if they're three. Or 30, I'm kicking them out, right? It's over. And I say that and I joke and I laugh and it, it, it's funny and I don't mean it. But it does get me thinking, what kind of legacy am I leaving them? What would my own kids, they're six and four and three and one and a few months, what would they say about me? That matters. And so as we just wrap up our time together, I just, again, want you to contemplate, to ask yourself, what's the legacy you're leaving? Do your children, do your coworkers, does everyone you come into contact with know this person is a child of God and that their relationship with Christ is the most important thing to them?
That's what I want to be said about me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage in Joshua as we think about the people entering the land and as we think about them forgetting who they were, what their identity was, and going through uh, physical circumcision again. Father, I pray that you would help us to have an identity that recognizes that you are our lives, that our lives are not about what we do, they're not about anything else but you, that that is our identity. Father, I pray that as we go about our day, as we go about our week and our our month and our year, Father, I pray that you would help each of us to pass that on to the next generation, that we are your children, and that is the most important thing. Father, I pray that you would help us in this task. In Jesus' name, amen.